the Abundant Mars podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, or good flight, potential Martians. I'm Michael Kubler, the host of this podcast. It's Friday, the 27th of January, 2023, and I'll be discussing how we can create an abundance-centered society on Mars, and hopefully use that technology and culture change here on Earth. I'll call it an abundance-centered society, or ACES for short, but uh, you might know it as a post-scarcity society or an RBE, a resource-based economy. For those that don't know it, a good place to start is just imagine that we have access to at least the necessities of life for free to everyone on the planet. I'll go into more detail later, but an abundance-centered society is mostly based around access abundance, closed-loop material flows, automation, and a systems perspective. Now, what I'm talking about isn't a slightly different form of capitalism or a different name for communism. It's a lot newer and likely different to what you've heard of before. What is Mars like? So, Mars is a very hostile environment. It's further from the sun, so it's much colder, with an average temperature of minus 60 degrees centigrade or minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit. It can get as cold as minus 128 degrees centigrade, although it has been detected to be as warm as 21 degrees centigrade, Uh, but being frozen to the bone seems to be the norm. The atmosphere is unbreathable for humans, being 1% or 100th as dense as that of Earth's, which is equivalent to flying at 35 kilometers above Earth, you know, 100,000 feet above. It's made of 95% CO2, and oxygen, O2, is only 0.17%. Yeah, not breathable. The gravity is 3.721 meters a second, which is only 38% that of Earth's. There's also no magnetosphere, meaning that despite getting only 40% as much sunlight as Earth, it's bombarded with a lot of high-energy particles, so it'll give you cancer 50 times more faster than on Earth. Now, we can use a layer of water and frozen CO2 to protect us from the radiation. Uh, There's also meteorites to worry about and other things like that. So we're going to be living in underground uh, caves or bunkers, that sort of thing. Most people just shouldn't spend a couple of years on Mars until we get some really good anti-cancer medical tech. The regolith or soil is 45% silicon dioxide or silicon with oxygen, and 16% iron oxide, so iron with oxygen. Uh, There's sulfur and a bunch of other elements as well, and I guess the closest approximation on Earth is the basalt that comes from volcanoes. But it also has perchlorates from chlorine, making it toxic to humans, and it's especially corrosive when wet, where just going to need a whole bunch of HEPA filters in the habitats, in Martian spacesuits and rovers, 
and there's some ideas where you leave your uh, setup outside. You 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 never bring your spacesuit inside. It's also a fair distance away. So the shortest distance between Earth and Mars is 56 million kilometers, and at the furthest, we're over 401 million kilometers apart. This means there's a signal delay of between three minutes and 22 minutes. So yeah, there's no Zoom calls, but maybe you can send some TikTok or YouTube shorts or something. I don't know. There is an alignment that happens every 26 months, so uh, 2.1 years. Uh, That's for the best orbitable approach. And it's going to take seven months to get there, which means we're going to be sending groups to Mars and they either just stay there for a couple of weeks or they're stuck there for the two years. Of course, it's going to cost a whole lot of uh, resources and money to get to Mars. Now, SpaceX is doing a great job with developing the Starship. Uh, we might be able to send a ship to Mars in as little as three to five years. Although sending people is probably going to take a lot longer. Uh, that said, maybe by the start of the 2030s, uh, we'll, we'll be sending ships over. Of course, even with the reusability aspect of Starships, it's likely that the initial costs will be in the order of a million dollars a ton. And while it's really hoped that that's going to drop way down, I mean, Elon Musk is talking about a family going for the price of a house. So you're talking at thousands of dollars a a ton. The main point is that sending stuff is going to be expensive. And of course, you can't easily get replacements. You certainly can't just order an Uber Eats if you forgot to pack enough sandwiches. The humans who do go there, they're going to need to be kept inside radiation-shielded, insulated, pressurized buildings, and there's just going to be very minimal trips outside because of the cancerous solar radiation. Of course, that means we're going to have to get robots to do most of the work. In terms of being able to breathe and everything else and, and have water... Uh, thankfully, there's a fair bit of frozen water in the poles and you can extract some of the water from the atmosphere and possibly even from opals in the ground. We're going to need a whole lot of just energy to heat up and melt the ice and turn it into water and then more energy to electrolyze it into hydrogen and oxygen. Out of the CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, you get a, a source of both oxygen and carbon and you put all that together and you can use those elements to make rocket fuel for sending people back to Earth. There's already a MOXIE working on Mars with the latest rover proving that we can make oxygen for breathing simply by using power and the CO2 in the atmosphere. So that's good. There's also plenty of iron in the regolith, the, the Martian rocks, which makes it relatively easy to make steel as long as you've got enough power and carbon. The sun isn't as strong as we'd want. There's no flowing water and the wind just isn't strong enough. So nuclear power plants are going to be important. But I'd still say that solar PV is a good backup. Of course, the solar panels are vulnerable to dust. So we're going to need some mechanism for wiping the dust away. But I mean, even some sort of windscreen wiper or a robot cleaner would work fine. So in summary, it's a hostile environment on Mars. You can't breathe the air. It's freezing cold. The solar rays are incredibly cancerous. It's only 38% the gravity of Earth, and you just don't have much in the way of viable power sources. There's a lot of challenges about getting to and living on Mars, and I'm going to go into some of those in more detail on later episodes, as that is something I'm interested in. 
But the main point of difference with this podcast is around the society and economy that we would use on Mars. Here's a scenario for you. We send rockets with robots and equipment to Mars. Very few of those have a rapid uh, unscheduled disassembly, or as you might say, uh, very few explode. Uh, There's some robots which set up some solar panels and fuel processing facilities, and after two years, the rockets return. The OK is given, and people get sent. The trip takes seven months, but they make it, and a colony is set up. We, humanity, start to live on Mars. The aim is then to set up a self-sustaining civilization on Mars, one able to survive without any more spaceships coming from Earth, for whatever reasons that may be. Now, what is the minimum setup required for that to happen? Not just how many people, but how many closed-loop systems. Maybe it's 10,000 people, maybe it's 100,000, maybe it's a million. I've got no idea at the moment. But we're also going to need to create an entire ecosystem and full technical nutrient cycles. Not just processing water, not just processing poop back into plant food, back into human food, but the full carbon cycle, nitrogen cycle, talking about steel, glass, and just about everything. So to be truly self-sustaining, we're going to need to make our own detergent and toothpaste. Even cooking oil is going to be something we're going to have to work out how to grow. Eventually, much further down the line, I'm hoping we'll be making our own electronics and and rockets on Mars. Now, we won't have access to petrol. Uh, There's just no oil on the ground. So making pharmaceuticals and other things is going to be hard. We're going to have to invent new construction and manufacturing techniques, new chemistry, new social customs, all of that. Yet, when I think about people living on Mars, I think more about it like Star Trek than Star Wars. So I think about how people there are going to be wanting to use good quality equipment, which they can fix. I think about how people might want to have to deal with all manner of disasters and problems and Uh, living on a hostile planet, just there's going to be lots of issues. Let's not make our economy one of them. I think about how I'd like to give those people the best possible chance to survive, which is why I think about them living in an abundance-centered society, one where resources are shared by default and available to everyone, one where the robots are automated instead of people having to manually control them all the time. Because when I try to imagine us using capitalism as the primary economic system on Mars, I think about how it'll be f***ed up. I mean, great to watch as a dystopian movie, but horrible to live in. When we send stuff to Mars, I'm sure different governments and corporations will likely be sending different parts. Maybe one country sends nuclear reactors and another sends solar panels and Yet a different country sends the habitat modules and hydroponic systems and we need 3D printers. You get the idea. But once you get there, under capitalism, you'll have to pay for the oxygen you breathe, the food you eat, the water you drink, where you live, all the necessities of life and everything else. And of course, capitalism doesn't focus on sustainability. This is highlighted by the way that corporations aim to maximise shareholder value and often do it as a cost to society and the environment as those are usually considered externalities. Uh, Some great examples of this are planned and perceived obsolescence. So planned obsolescence is where things are designed to break down. Imagine having multiple kettles and vacuum cleaners per person, 
because over a two-year stint, they're likely to stop working. Apply that to nearly everything people need and suddenly you're going to need to bring hundreds of tons of equipment more per person. Instead, you should be able to have a kettle that directly heats water into a thermos so it doesn't lose heat. It should also be robust and easy to repair and the hot water could be shared amongst a group of people. So now, instead of two items per person, now you only need one for each three people. Currently, the ability to repair things is often not allowed in capitalism. It's designed to break down just after the warranty period, and it's illegal to fix it. I mean, there's laws in place preventing you from doing so. Check out most of Cory Doctorow's work for examples of this. I I really like his article titled, If Dishwashers Were iPhones, because we're not going to be able to schedule a technician from Earth to come out and fix the dishwashers because it detected an incompatible dish as we had to make some locally. You know, they broke on the way. Anyway, perceived obsolescence is where new models are released which no longer make the old one worth buying or they're simply not supported. Uh, It usually starts with a new shiny model. But soon enough, if you don't do the upgrade, you can't get parts for the old one anymore. And if it's electronics, it's usually not compatible with the newer software. So on Mars... We're going to want to have any hardware and software available as open source, uh, or at least source available, and editable so that we can understand and fix any bugs. Even a bug in a washing machine which makes it use 20% more water could be disastrous on Mars, where extracting, melting, using, and, and treating the water is quite energy intensive. But such an issue would barely be detectable on Earth. Capitalism also has the requirement that you're employed. You have to buy things in order for money to flow through the system, and monetary systems require people to work. But that requirement is competing against automation, and there's that tension and conflict there, which means people just fight against things which could automate them out of a job. Yet we're going to need to automate most of the work on Mars because humans just won't physically be able to do it. So... Question, how much do you believe that capitalism is the best economic system that we've got? Uh, Do you think that's like a 2 out of 10 or maybe a 6 out of 10 of it being the best? I'll just start by giving you a brief history of some economic systems. Thousands of years ago, we were using credit, not not a barter system. Uh, Go check out David Graeber's book on debt, The First 5,000 Years, for, for more information about that. But yeah, we were living in a village... You knew everyone else and you did things for other people and they'd do things for you and you just always had a credit with others. Of course, kings start having armies and start conquering land and now those armies need to get paid. So most of those armies were just looting gold and jewellery and trinkets from people's houses but it, at some point, someone got the idea of generating money, and along with that came taxes. And eventually, we have things like Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which helped to find, you know, what was becoming capitalism. Now, skip forward a little bit further, and as per Yuval Noah Harari's book Homo Deus, capitalism won over communism because of data and decision making. So communism had central planning, but It was hard for a bunch of humans in Moscow to work out how many loaves of bread a bakery should bake a week from now. 
that's even in their own city, let alone another city on the other side of the country. They'd have to define the amount of flour and salt and everything else that would get delivered and all, all of that th- throughout the system. But that was just slow, low-quality information and just not very efficient. And they also had a bunch of other bad ideas like planting seeds too close to each other. Capitalism had the decision-making at the notes. Each bakery was in charge of working out how many loaves of bread they need to make. Thus, capitalism seems to have won out, mostly because of that. But both capitalism and communism have a bunch of other downsides. There's just a, a point now where those old systems are starting to systematically fail us. Thankfully, there's a bunch of alternative economic systems. So we've got true cost economics, steady state economics, uh, PearCon, uh, and of course, an abundant centered society, ACES. Now, because capitalism doesn't do a good job at dealing with the environment nor human well-being, true cost economics puts a price on nature. It tries to understand what the economic impact of the ecosystem is. So be that a, a swamp, a forest, or animal, or human happiness. Steady state economics tries to remove the infinite growth paradigm and helps us live within the carrying capacity of the earth. Whilst with PEARCON or participatory economics, they recognise that there's an issue with voting for people to represent you if those politicians are meant to work in their own self-interests. So instead of representative democracy, they go for participatory democracy and those most affected by a decision are the ones with the most influence in the decision. So a great example is a poster on your wall. Uh, I mean, I've got a nice Mars base poster there. It's my wall. Doesn't matter much to others. I'm the one with the most influence in that decision. But if I decided to play loud death metal music or Taylor Swift at two in the morning, then unless my fellow housemates and neighbours also wanted to listen to that at the same time, then they have an influence in that decision. There's some other anarcho-capitalist variations like copiosis, which focuses on net benefit rewards. But the one with the most up-to-date is, is ACES, an abundance-centered society, where we're talking about access abundance, closed-loop material flows, automation, and a systems perspective. So to reiterate, uh, sending stuff to Mars is going to be expensive. It's hostile there. We're going to have to do things differently we should be using the best practices. So because we don't have an existing ecosystem on Mars, a lot of those alternative economic systems aren't suitable. In ACES, uh, the access abundance part of it is about changing the paradigm from private property to access as you need it. Instead of having to buy and maintain a vacuum cleaner, drill and everything else you might need, you instead get access to the things you need to ensure your house is clean and, you know, you can put a hole in the wall or though you probably shouldn't be putting holes in the wall on on Mars, but you you get the idea. Uh, Yeah, you should be getting access to everything you need to have a thriving life. Now, when you aren't actively using those tools, others can be using them. 
There is still personal property. I mean, I don't want your smelly underwear. You should also be owning your own data, uh, like Verida, uh, which is a crypto solution being worked on for you to own and control your own personal data. I can talk about that in another episode. There's the closed-loop material flows, which is also known as cradle-to-cradle or the circular economy, and that's about tracking the technical and biological nutrients and keeping them in a never-ending cycle. Now, in our current system, we're extracting resources from the planet, processing them, manufacturing them, at usually to make a product at the cheapest possible price, and we use it for a short while, throw it away, it usually ends up in a garbage dump or in the, the ocean somewhere. In ACES, we don't throw things into the garbage. There, there is a garbage system. Instead, we closing that loop by having those items be dismantled into their component parts and base elements and becoming feedstock for the next products. We also need to create products that are designed to last. That'll reduce the cycle time so they're not looping through as fast as each of those cycles uses a lot of energy. And all of that means that you don't have to keep extracting more and more resources and instead you keep reusing the ones you've already got. Some examples are nylon clothes, which can be melted down or respun, and you unthread and, and rethread them and make them into new materials nearly an infinite number of times. You might also have packaging that's either designed to last or it might be bio-nutritional and good for the environment. So technical resource, you make it to last. Biological material, you make it designed for the compost. So we might have signs saying, please litter here because it's good for the gardens. And I was trying to say that there's a difference between the biological and technical nutrients. Biological nutrients shouldn't be mixed with technical materials. So we shouldn't be washing paints and solvents down the sink, but we also shouldn't be making disposable diapers out of plastics, but instead things which will turn into compost. Or we simply use reusable ones and we just keep rewashing them. Automation is about using robots and computer systems to do the laborious work. So we humans can focus on what matters. I mean, you don't want to wash those diapers by hand, do you? Then there's the systems perspective, which is about how you design everything to work together as a whole, especially working with the ecosystems, social systems, and technical systems. So an example might be automating checkouts at the supermarket. Instead of replacing paid checkout checks with consumers doing the scanning, you would instead be looking at, you know, what's that main aim? Well, it's to get stuff into your fridge and cupboards. Instead of having supermarkets, you would have a transport system that goes directly into your fridge and cupboards. You order something from your phone and it can arrive a few minutes later. Now you've completely removed the need for supermarkets and large sections of the supply chain, allowing more space for things that matter. I'll go into more detail in another episode, but... The key thing is that together, the application of these concepts means that you can easily produce at least the necessities of life for free to everyone on the planet. But for the bigger cognitive leap, for those who are prepared to make it, we can go a step further and we can actually produce such abundant access to resources that humans no longer have a need for money anymore. Now, 
I'm sure that some people's eyes just glazed over. Uh, and for those who don't know what I'm talking about, just hang on over the course of the next few podcast episodes. I'll explain in more detail. You know, hopefully some of your common questions like motivation. If you don't have money, then how will you motivate people? And the answer is intrinsic motivation. We use autonomy, mastery and purpose. And that means people will be more creative. And because the art of automating things is a creative endeavor, we end up automating enough that there's less need for the extrinsic motivation of money. That said, you just might also not be the right sort of audience member who's ready to hear about alternative economic systems. I congratulate you for making it this far. Uh, you might also be someone who's just 100% focused on Earth. And so you just don't think that building on Mars is worth it. That's fine. The internet is a vast place and there's plenty of entertainment and distractions for you. I'm just going to try and inspire the hundred or so people who design the next buildings and systems on Mars. But for those who want to continue listening, I've got a whole bunch of questions and some answers. Like, what technology and systems are needed for us to thrive on Mars? What breakthroughs will we need? What major cultural changes are needed? Will the people on Mars work better in an abundant-centered society or using capitalism? For those who already know of the Zeitgeist Movement, Venus Project, or other organizations which are promoting the RBE or you know, post-scarcity society, then one of the questions you might have is, why haven't we already transitioned to a post-scarcity or abundant-centered society already? I mean, the movie Zeitgeist Moving Forward has over 25 million views, and the Zeitgeist Movement itself started 14 years ago, yet we don't have a working prototype village yet. I know there's a whole lot of different reasons for why we haven't transitioned. And one of the big ones is just inertia. Uh, another is fear of change. But it's also just really hard to build things. I've been partly involved in two decent attempts at a small-scale transition. So there was Earth Communities in South Australia and Kodakorp in Finland. Uh, out of that, the most we've got is a small piece of land with an old building which had some asbestos in it. The main core why and theme of this podcast is this question. What if the best way of developing the technology and culture we want for an abundant censored society is by developing it for Mars? I believe that if we try developing some off-grid, you know, abundant censored society inspired communities here on Earth, we're just not going to be reimagining everything from first principles. We're going to be lazy, partly because we can be. We're going to use old construction techniques. We're going to throw stuff in the trash. We're going to buy off-the-shelf parts from the mall and may end up in a car culture-dominated city simply because that's what people are used to. But on Mars, we can't do that. On Mars, we have to deal with and track everything, the, the heat, the oxygen, the water, the food, the steel, all the materials used. We need to ensure where possible that it can also be reused. The digital tracking and resource engine will need to be far more sophisticated than anything we'd try building on Earth. We're going to be in a completely new and somewhat hostile place, but also open to new concepts, like the Tower of Aces, which are some suggested cultural norms uh, that I have, like 
being responsibility-based, aiming to reduce needless violence, waste and stratification towards zero, and a bunch of other ideas which I'll explain in detail in another podcast episode. Now I want to tell you two stories, that of someone living on Mars. But first, I just need to explain the idea of technological levels on airlocks and and pressurized doors. Just stay with me. So obviously, we're going to need warm, oxygenated air inside, and we need to keep the freezing cold, thin, dangerous Martian atmosphere out. So we're going to need to use airlocks to get in and out. And there's going to be different areas that are going to need to be sealed up in case of an emergency depressurization, like a a meteorite causes a hull breach or some stupid person decides to go around shooting a gun. Uh, Although ideally, we're not going to have guns on Mars. Now, those different areas could be, say, the hydroponic system and each apartment and all those different sections can all be sealed up separately. And there's a few different ways we can build such doors and airlocks. So for simplicity, I'm going to focus on the doors between sections that would be used for the airlocks, but hopefully you will get the idea. So level one, we've got airtight but fully manual doors. So think submarine doors with a big wheel that you can turn. I mean, these are completely dumb. They're going to be hard to use. And most likely they're just going to be used improperly or left open 90% of the time, meaning if there is a hull breach, people will die. If you're doing your oiling and maintenance, uh, then that's just going to be done manually by humans. Level two is where you've got mechanical doors, but they can automatically close in the event of, of air pressure venting. Maybe there's a more sophisticated design to them where if they need oiling, then there's just a nice little oil reservoir which humans can just go along and refill as needed. Level three is electronic doors, which can just be opened with a a switch nearby. Those can also have a basic sensor to indicate if the oil reservoir is low. They can indicate what the atmosphere on the other side is like and if it's breathable and, and warm enough. You can have nice colored lights and a digital display. It's great. Maybe level four is the sort of electronic doors, but you can also uh, just, they'll automatically unlock and let you open and enter and exit really easily. So you don't have to deal with all the air pressure gauges and everything else at an airlock, especially. Uh, For level five, I'm thinking you'd have network connected doors, which can be remotely opened or closed. So, you know, via your phone or your suit or anything like that, uh, or remotely if there's an emergency. So those also allow us to track who uses them. They can, you know, you can easily track how often they're used. We can allow robots to easily use them. And there can be quick alerts about any air pressure leaks. Level six would be doors with IoT sensors. So these would be sensors within the mechanisms where you can detect any stresses and fractures in the material, any breakages. And so they don't need to be opened up to check if they need maintenance. And level seven would be doors that are just automatically maintained by robots and just no human intervention and maintenance is required. The idea of setting up those levels is to make you sort of get an understanding how we can build things in various ways that need different levels of human upkeep. So 
To make this real, I want to tell you two stories. So the first is Jeff's capitalism story. Jeff's wristwatch beeped at him and vibrated him awake. It was 3am on Mars and Jeff had to get up and take another round of chemo drugs. He groggily opened his eyes and stumbled out of bed and found the next syringe in the set. The drugs made him vomit, so he sat on the side of the bed with a trash can between his legs and chundered. (sighs) He'd been doing this for a week now. Every six hours, his throat was bleeding from all the stomach acid. The only thing that seemed to help that at least he could afford was drinking from a juice box. He drank it to ease the pain and give his stomach something back in return. He eventually went back to sleep, only to be woken up again at 8am, and this time he had to get ready for work. Jeff is the primary maintenance tech for the pressure doors to the Mars colony. And there's 50,000 people living on Mars now, so, yeah, it's an important job. Growing up, like many kids, he'd dreamed of being an astronaut. He'd look up at the stars at night and wonder, what was it like up there? Of course, that was a very brief phase of his life, but it subtly steered him towards being just interested in doors to being interested in large doors and eventually pressurised doors and airlocks. After brushing his teeth and going down the hallway to the shower at the communal bathhouse, he comes back, double bags his trash with all the vomit in it, and goes through the main hallway airlock by his apartment, having gotten onto his Martian spacesuit. Cycling the airlock is both an art and science, with trying to interpret the pressure gauges and making sure you weren't venting much atmosphere outside. The big circular wheels you have to spin to open and close the doors were based on those old submarine doors, and they're just hard to use in those bulky spacesuits. Of course, Jeff had perfected the art, using the airlock in a record-setting time. Not that anyone knew that, not even Jeff. The atmosphere outside is effectively non-existent from a breathing perspective, but it was still enough to pick up lots of dust. The sign for the dump site is barely visible, and except for some of the new trash bags, most of the garbage pile has developed a thick layer of dust. Jeff wonders if he'll still be alive when they haul the trash off in the spaceship back to Earth. He notices a dust devil whirling off in the distance as he returns. The stormy season is starting. Maybe that'll clear things up a bit. His suit's internal heater was faltering in the cold morning air. He was getting dangerously cold. He didn't know it, but those trips outside and an undetected crack in the radiation shielding on his habitat module is why he developed what the doctors colloquially called cosmic cancer. His unit was just a cramped room with a bed, toilet and closet for clothes. As he returned, he got a ding. Bing! His oxygen bill had just arrived. He's burned through his savings. The chemo drugs cost a month of his wages for every day that he's taken them, and he's now behind on his electricity and housing payments. He certainly won't be able to afford another two weeks of treatment, which is what the doc said was needed. Hopefully, just another day or two will be enough, as that's all he can afford. When he was first blasted into space, it was exhilarating. There was 
12 days in complete zero G as his ship had, you know, refueling payloads and then a mass of other starships collected in a group and waited for the transfer window. There's just a few days every 2.1 years weather. It's the fastest trip from Earth to Mars. His ship took off, then carefully manoeuvred with five others, which then all got tethered together, and they started rotating together as one, providing for an artificial gravity. I mean, it's only 15% that of Earth's. It wasn't much, but it was enough. It helped the toilet flush and other things to work, and yeah, he felt so much energy and power then. Everything was so light, and there were so many possibilities. Sure, the ship he was on was crammed with 99 other people, and after seven months in near-zero-G, even with the basic steroid meds that gave him the use of the gym equipment, he'd lost the muscle mass. Those first steps on the red planet were a little bit wobbly. At 38% of the Earth's gravity, it was still higher gravity than what he'd gotten used to. After a month, he could finally bound across the open plains. Now, 18 months on Mars, and he was so weak, he was having issues just walking. His body was riddled with cancer, and he had no idea how he'd be able to walk on Earth again if he even got there. He realises he'd zoned out whilst waiting for the 9am alarm again, because it's time to take his meds. He looked at his standard issue smartwatch to see that his battery had died again. It used to last a week and now doesn't even last a day without needing to be recharged. He couldn't just install a new battery. The company which built them doesn't legally allow that, and they just never built it for the battery to be replaceable. Of course, they've got a new model out, but Jeff can't buy one of those on his wage. Jeff takes his meds, is sick, drinks a juice box, grabs his oil and gun and tool belt and heads out for another day's work. He's got 50 doors and airlocks to inspect today. He's got to check them for wear and tear, lubricate them and make sure the gauges are correct. Sometimes the mechanisms need oiling, sometimes it's graphite powder. For some of those heavily trafficked doors, they need new rubber. He's going to go pull apart a lot of locking mechanisms, no matter whether there's wear and tear or not. He's got to open them up just to see what's in there. Of course, he's been doing it for the last 1.5 years, so yeah, he's got it down to 5 minutes per door and 10 minutes for checking the full airlock cycle. But you can guess what happens to Jeff. He can't afford the cancer treatment, so he stops it, and he dies. He's taken back in the same spaceship that takes back the trash. Whilst there was another person who was trained in doing airlock and door maintenance, that was their backup task. They're so busy with their primary role that they didn't get enough time to do more than repair the things that had already been broken. The company in charge figures they'll just send a replacement person on the next flight. They had just missed the the window, but that's fine. It's two years in that time. Of course, not one, but two doors break their seals, and some people who are about to start suiting up by the airlock are killed. Most were in ore processing, uh, but there was a higher-up official who was also killed in the tragedy. The company is sued back on Earth, and they end up bankrupt. 
Jeff's abundance centered society story. So, Jeff wakes up naturally at 8.22am and checks his phone. There's currently 30,000 people on Mars, and whilst there's 500 important airlocks to the outside, nearly every room has a networked electronic door which can hold back atmospheric pressure in the case of a breach. With a quick check of his phone, Jeff can see the three doors which have wear and tear, at least enough worth investigating. There's also four doors where there's oil wells that need a top-up. Today's rounds will be quick. I mean, abundant Jeff may not be quite as fast as capitalism Jeff, but he doesn't have to do nearly as much work. The rest of the doors, they're all in the green. Their internal mechanisms are working, as expected, and there's no pressure leaks. Jeff heads over to his fridge, where a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice has recently arrived. The oranges were automatically picked from the hydroponic system within the last hour, as per his programmed instructions. When it was detected that Jeff was awake, they were squeezed, put into a glass cup with a silicon lid, and sent through a robotic transport network directly to the fridge in his room. Jeff takes the silicon lid off and puts it on the table in the area marked for the robot system to take it back. And it'll be washed, reused, probably millions of times, before eventually being reformed into a new product. He selects what he wants for breakfast. He chooses to have it in the cafeteria where he can meet up with his fellow Martian engineers and scientists. He wants to talk to them about the coordinated doorway fire suppression system that he's working on. The aim is to allow fires to be vented out to the Martian atmosphere if needed, or use airlocks to remove the atmosphere. The tricky bit, of course, is to make sure you don't vent so much that you suffocate humans, but you do suffocate the fire. But mostly, he wants to talk to Heather. She's nice, and the two have been enjoying their time together. Mm. Jeff doesn't have cancer, because there's multiple forms of radiation shielding over his apartment. A thick layer of frozen CO2, which is thermal insulation, and the ability to be actively cooled to prevent it turning into a gas... On the couple of days a year, it gets above freezing outside. There's also radiation monitors and the potential to enable active EM systems built into the hull on those really heavy radiation days. His watch lets him know that the battery is low. It only takes him a couple of moments to drain and refill the liquid capsule battery with a fresh charge, allowing the watch to last another three weeks or so. The discharged red flow battery liquid goes back into the system to be recharged and reused. He heads over to the cafeteria and pulls out a Martian forged knife and fork from the drawer, indicating that he's ready to eat. His meal has already been prepared by the cooking robots and is delivered within moments of him sitting down. His fellow engineers will join him shortly. Okay, so some big differences. The juice boxes are gone. Those aren't reusable and were instead just thrown away. But there is no real away Instead, Abundant Jeff gets the fresh-squeezed orange juice and, of course, even the glass is washed and reused. His pee and poop are cycled through. Everything is tracked as biological, technical nutrients and is reused nearly infinite times. By default, there's access abundance. So, Abundant Jeff has what he needs, when he needs it. But in a way that everyone else can benefit and use those things when he isn't. For example... His fridge acts as a storage for items that maybe he might not use, but someone else might need. Capitalism Jeff, however, has to 
pay for everything. Now, capitalism Jeff got to go because his company was selected as the lowest cost option for building and maintaining the system. But of course, they cut corners. They used the most basic doors and got to charge people a maintenance fee. Of course, they were gambling with people's lives. Did you notice that I said that there was 50,000 people in capitalism versus 30,000 in the abundant version? Now, I'm assuming pretty much the same amount of resources are sent. However, yeah, there's going to be more robots and better systems. So we're going to send less people for the abundant version, but they're going to be more effective because the vast majority of tasks are going to be automated or using systems design thinking means they're just not going to be needed. Whereas in capitalism, we're going to need more people. That said, I'm sorry if I made your eyes glaze over when talking about an alternative economic system, especially if you think it just sounds utopian in some way. It took me months to fully grok the idea of an abundance-centered society. It took me a decade more research to get to this point, so I don't expect people to just change quickly or fully understand this for a while. Uh, If you're interested in learning more, then I highly recommend the movie Zeitgeist Moving Forward. Peter Joseph does a great job explaining the issues and the late Jack Fresco does a great job explaining the, the RBE. The Abundant Center Society is a slightly modified version of, of an RBE. I'll leave a, a link in the show notes to all of that. But to recap, getting to Mars is hard. Living on Mars will be hard. We're going to need a whole new economic system in order to be able to cope with the unique demands. So... I'm hoping an abundant sense of society, one that's based on access abundance, closed loop material flows, automation, and a systems perspective are what we need to have a thriving society on Mars. Next episode, I'm going to go into more detail about an abundant sense of society's core aspects uh, and any questions you might have, especially about the moneyless society side of things. My aim is to be releasing an episode a month until I've covered most of the Abundant Mars proposal, which is something I'm currently working on. Uh, I'll then release the proposal, hopefully, at at the end of what I'm considering Season 1. If there's a Season 2 of this podcast, it's probably going to be covering certain aspects in some more detail, but also things like the latest news on, on Mars and other just related science development, and hopefully more interviews with people. I'm hoping you're going to want to be a part of the community and I hope you're one of those people who want to see an abundant centered society in our solar system, be that on Mars or Earth, preferably both. If you like the episode, then it helps if you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast. That is assuming it's got rating or review capabilities. You can share or download this podcast via AbundantMars.com, A-B-U-N-D-A-N-T-M-A-R-S.com, where I'll have posted the script that I'm reading from and some imagery created using the Midjourney AI and other images I've come across. You can also ask me some questions there and there's links to my Twitter and, and everything else. Uh Hopefully any good questions are ones I'll be able to reply in the the next episodes. Uh, Some general facts about me. I'm a web developer by day and I'm working on a SaaS startup. I have been a part of the Zeitgeist movement since the first Z-Day when I created the South Australian chapter of the Zeitgeist movement. 
It's like 14 years ago. Wow. Uh, I would have gotten my private pilot's license on my 18th birthday. However, it was too windy to fly. So I got it a week or so later. I didn't get my driver's license for another few months. So that means for a while I could fly anywhere in Australia, but I couldn't drive myself to the airport. Uh, Currently, it's just me doing this and I've got a full-time job. Hence, I just won't be releasing episodes regularly. But instead of adding lots of sponsors, I've got some recommendations. Uh, If you're interested in increasing the access abundance with others, then check out ShareBay, which is run by Colin Turner. That's sharebay.org. It's a site where you can offer up items and services to be shared. I offer my stock footage on there to anyone who's creating content for helping the transition to an abundant centered society. Another site that Colin Turner runs is Free World Charter. Uh, You can go to freeworldcharter.org or search online and sign the 10-point charter. Uh, Last I checked, there were 60,000 signatures on there. You might also enjoy the Moneyless Society podcast. They're doing gangbusters and they're currently working on a doco or movie which includes Richard Wolff and even Noam Chomsky. So I recommend you subscribe to them. That's the Moneyless Society podcast. The intro music was The Seed by Aurora and outro music was Follow the Sun by Xavier Rudd. I've used some AI voiceovers via fakeyou.com. That's all I've got time for for now. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and get any notifications for next month's episode. Thank you very much. So follow, follow the sun, the direction of the birds, the direction of love.